0: Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the communications director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. Because what can the white man use now to fool us?
1: After he put down that march on Washington, and you see all through that now, he tricked you had you marching down to Washington, yes, had you marching back and forth between the feet of a dead man named Lincoln and another, another dead man named George Washington, singing We Shall Overcome.
0: Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were both icons of the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. Both men had large followings. Both men put their energy into bringing about equality for African Americans in a world dominated by white people. And Both men were heroes to Oliver Green. Oliver's name is likely familiar to some of you in the Great Plains Conference. He's a kind soul who almost always wears a smile. In the times I've been around him in my six years in the Great Plains Conference, I can only remember him saying things that build people up instead of tearing people down. He served as associate lay leader of the Great Plains Conference, and these days he's heavily involved in mercy and justice ministries within Kansas and Nebraska. I heard a little about Oliver's story, his life story, while riding public transit with him between the hotel and the convention center several times during the 2016 General Conference of the United Methodist Church in Portland, Oregon. But I wanted to learn more. You know what? Oliver has lived an amazing life. Oliver attended a segregated school in Salina, Kansas. He graduated from Kansas Wesleyan University, where he was class president as an African-American man in the 1960s, and he earned a master's degree from Washington University in St. Louis. As a person who moved into adulthood in the 1960s, he not only saw the impacts of the Civil Rights Movement, he lived it. Now, You won't hear me much in this episode, at least not until Oliver starts asking me questions And yes, I'm well aware that less of me is a good thing. I ask a few questions and chime in from time to time, but the vast majority of what you're about to hear is simply Oliver telling his story. What was it like to come of age in the 1960s as an African-American man? How was the movement of the 1960s similar to the cries for racial justice that we experience today? What attracted him to leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King? And what can we do today, right here in the Great Plains Conference, to move forward on the important topic of racial justice to find the answers to those questions and more here's my discussion with oliver green oliver thanks for joining me on in layman's terms i'm curious if you wouldn't mind telling us just your memories what was life like during the civil rights movement for you in the 1960s tell us a little bit about where you were what you were doing in that era
1: well, it's, it's glad to be here, Todd. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here and to talk to you about um, these issues. Uh, maybe I would start with a little bit about my own personal history or family history. Um, my father's people came to Kansas in 1865, right after the, uh, the Civil War, and settled uh, outside of what is now Salina. His son was a constable in Salina. Uh, My father worked as a janitor uh, until he died. He died when I was nine years old. My mother uh, came to Salina uh, to teach in the segregated school. And um, she taught there until she married my father. Um, And at that time, Married women could not teach. They had to be single, so uh, she became a housewife. Um, I recall the, uh, going across town to the segregated school, Dunbar, the Dunbar School. In Salina, back then, Iron Avenue kind of defined the north side from the south side in Salina. We lived on the south side. Most blacks lived on the north side. The black churches were north. The school was north. The community center was no- north. The taverns were north. Uh, and we lived on the south side. So we had passed like five schools that were in walking distance to my house to get to the Dunbar School. There were six families that lived um, on one street, basically, an intersection on the south side. We are one of those, and there was another um, family that had children, so I grew up with uh, two o- two older brothers and a cousin who lived across the street. Um, when the schools desegregated, That was the same year my my dad died. And the next year, I went to uh, uh, Whittier School, which was two blocks from my house. So, I say all that to say that um, I grew up in two worlds. Um, I had friends, white friends, on the south side that were kids together and played together. And I had black friends on the north side that I went to school with, that we go swimming together, we're in Boy Scouts together. So I kind of lived in in two worlds. Um, I graduated from high school in 1963, and I enrolled in Kansas Wesleyan. I would add that my two brothers also went to Kansas Wesleyan. Two of us got degrees from there. The other one went there two years and transferred to another school and got his degree there. Um, My father's sister graduated from Kansas Wesleyan in 1922, and she taught school there in Salina. Um, That's
0: impressive just knowing the history of things. 1922 Mm -hmm. is far earlier than a lot of other schools had, universities had integrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yay for the Coyotes.
1: (laughs) I don't want to boast or anything, but just try and tell my story, I guess. Um, I was elected uh, freshman class president. Um, And I sang in the Philharmonic Choir, and we traveled um, in-state, and I think it was my freshman year, I think we went to the World's Fair in New York and we would go from one community, sing at the church, stay with church members, go to the next community, and that's the way we just traveled up to uh, New York. I was the only black in the choir, and uh, my roommate was the bus driver. Um, And the bus driver always stayed at a hotel, so, or a motel. So I would go into the white home by myself and that's just the way it was. When I, in my senior year, I was elected president of my senior class, and this was probably my first real shock at discrimination. Rightly or wrongly, Um, When we had commencement, I sat out in the G part of the uh, graduating class, and the student council president gave the student message, and that hurt my feelings. I thought as the class president, that would be my honor to do, and that hurt me uh, deeply. one of my mentors coming up was uh, Reverend Whalen Blackman, who was a Methodist minister who came here from Mississippi. He was kind of a short man. He had polio as a kid, a great preacher. Um, his sermons, he'd include Nietzsche and Bonhoeffer and all that, he was just a uh, an intelligent, um, uh, well-versed preacher.
0: Bringing a lot of that reason into the Wesleyan quadrilateral (laughs) with those with those names, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. He had me reading James Baldwin when I was in the eighth grade, and he would have me critique his his sermons after church, and uh, we spent a lot of time together. We um, he was invited to to preach out in Western Kansas, and I was probably fifteen or sixteen, maybe sixteen. And I'd drive with them. I'd help them drive, and we'd go to these communities, Great Bend and wherever else. And we just had a great time together. And we used to we used to talk a lot. And one of the guys we talked about was Malcolm X. Um, and the whole black nationalist thing. Um, and I was in the chemistry lab and he called me and he told me that they had killed Malcolm X. Um, I just wanted to, this Methodist minister, uh, and we would talk about black nationalism, and I guess one of our heroes was was Malcolm X. On the same token, I had another mentor, uh, Robert Caldwell, who, Taught school at segregated school at Dunbar, and then on to um, the, the high school where he taught printing. Um, he was my teacher in grade school. He ran the swimming pool that was across the street from the uh, segregated school from Dunbar. Um, he was my scoutmaster, um, and I remember when. Uh, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream address, and uh, it was during the afternoon, if I remember correctly, and I remember walking across the street to one of the ladies who lived in the neighborhood, and we looked through the window and listened to the radio for that I Have a Dream speech. Mr. Cowell went on to become mayor of Salina, And he ran for state representative from from Salina, and we walked from um, when he was campaigning. We walked from St. John Military School um, to Kansas Wesleyan, handing out flyers and um, promoting his campaign. Um, he was a, a major influence in my life. In 1967, after graduating from Kansas-Westland, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. As a graduate student, as a graduate assistant in chemistry, I went there originally uh, to study nuclear chemistry. Um, And this was during the Vietnam War era. Um,
0: You had me pause when you said nuclear chemistry. (laughs) I still have somewhat of nightmares of sophomore high school chemistry. So, uh, kudos to you for, for understanding anything related to that subject.
1: So, um, there weren't a lot of black students at Washington University, but there was uh, a group of uh, black graduates who were in business administration, and. Um, I kind of fell in with them. By the way, I was the only one that had a car. I I, I don't... <laughs> uh, so... That made uh, you the popular guy. Yeah, yeah. Plus, uh, I stayed in the, in the dorm. We stayed in the dorm there, big high-rise. And I didn't have a roommate, but I had a double room. So my room became... The hangout, you know, so I was a, yeah, a popular guy. We decided to form uh, a black association, the Association of Black Students. Uh, this was in 1967. Uh, I got involved with that. We did some organizing, we went to other colleges and organized there. Uh, We were doing work in the high schools, uh, just promoting the whole black power thing. Black is beautiful, all of that. Um, So I really don't speak from the civil rights movement, although when I was a sophomore in college, um, I wanted to go down south with the sit-ins, and I remember my mother telling me, and Reverend Blackman telling me, said, Oliver, if you do that, how are you gonna pay for your sophomore year in college? I said, oh, okay, Uh, so I'll just scratch that off by my my list of things I wanted to do. Um, But during that organizing, I just lost interest in chemistry, and became caught up in that black power, movement, if you will. Um, And I came home talking all that stuff to my mother and her sisters. Uh, Two of my mother's sisters had their master's degree and were teachers. Um, And they said, Oliver, um, you didn't go to Washington University to protest. You went to Washington University to get your master's degree. Um, I said, oh, oh okay, okay. Uh, so I, I went back and I uh, got a, uh, a fellowship in, in the education uh, program there, got my master's in education. Um, and there was an incident on campus uh, involving a black student, and it kind of developed, and we ended up protesting. Um, and if you recall back there, they had back then they had the students for a Democratic Society, the SDS. Well, to support our protest, they took over the president's office, sitting behind his desk. Da 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 da. Our group went down to the basement of the administration building and took over the accounting office, shut it down for 10 days. No checks flowed out of Washington University for 10 days. We developed a black manifesto calling for a black studies program at the university, calling for a black institute in the community, calling for more support (laughs) for black students to come to Washington University and support them while they're there and they uh, they agreed to meet our demands, and they said, "Well, if we're going to do this, we need your help doing it." So we said, "Okay." Um, so I became—they hired me as the director of what was the Educational Opportunity Program, which was to. Um, uh, ed- admitting students, getting them the financial aid, getting them the supportive services they needed to uh, be successful at the university, and I did that for for four years. I say all that to say back in 1969 when this incident and all this stuff occurred, uh, 50 years later... They called our group back to Washington University to give us uh, trailblazing
0: awards.
1: So that's kind of what I was doing (laughs) during the 60s. Well,
0: you know, and I think that's interesting. Your story is so fascinating to me because it shows that you can be involved, heavily involved, uh, away from the big headlines. I mean, none of the things that you shared were major national headlines in most places anyway. Um, But yet you helped affect change uh, with what you did. I want to backtrack just a little bit. You mentioned Malcolm X and you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. People in my generation, I'm a Gen Xer. I didn't learn a thing about Malcolm X until I got to the University of Kansas.
1: Hmm.
0: Any history class. I had had a Jewish professor uh, who just felt like it was so important. Uh, to have a multicultural type of experience, and so we learned a lot about different cultures in the history, the the contextual history of the United States since the Civil War. That was the class. Mm -hmm. Fantastic course. Uh, I still wish I would've kept that book. (laughs) But my question for you is, what do you remember about the differences between those two men? I mean, the the, the portrayals in movies and what you read in books uh, is they had two very different approaches to a somewhat common goal, but even their goals weren't exactly the same. What was it about each of those men in your mind that made them, uh, made them fascinating to you, that made you want to support them?
1: They both spoke to the social and economic um, situation at, at their time. Outside my study at home, I have a big picture of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Hugging and shaking hands, and they're both smiling. So, they just they had different approaches, and they spoke to uh, different um, uh, different parts of the black community. Um, the the Nation of Islam. I'll, I'll share this share this story with you. When I was working as the director at Washington University. I had students from across the country. Um, I had one student from, <laughs> from Harlem. He was uh, Japanese-American, but he was basically black. I mean, he wore a red hat and red shoes or a green hat. and He was just hip, but he was also on heroin. Uh, He didn't come back after his freshman year. I had another student out of Chicago, who also was a heroin addict. These are kids that were 18 years old, Um, and and he would he would have to hustle uh, their their newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, I think is what it was called, and I bought lots of those papers so he didn't have to be out on the street selling them and can do his schoolwork. Um, But through, after he had joined the Nation of Islam, he kicked his heroin addiction, went on to get his medical degree. So. I, I was saying that to say that I supported what the National Islam was able to do um, with people in in certain categories. Um, I also um, believed in Martin Luther King's nonviolent approach. I was drafted in nineteen sixty nine. And I protested the draft. I think it was 68. But I was thinking about going to Canada because I was not going into the war. That was just not who I was. That is not what I believed. Um, <laughs> they had asked me to sign a, um, I think it was like a loyalty oath or whatever, and I refused to sign it. But it was the same document I signed two years earlier to work at at the post office in Salina. Um, So, I was drafted, I I was hired by the university. Um, I I filed as a conscientious objector. Um, The university provided me with a lawyer to support my, my claim. I had to go back to Solana and face the draft board and my next-door neighbor who was black whose um, daughter was I think two years younger than me. I think I broke her arms when she was like 10 playing or whatever but we were neighbors and I was out in the backyard doing something and he came over and he said Oliver I'm, I'm on the draft board and I've known you like 15 years and I'm just going to have to abstain uh, in the hearing I said okay so be it so I went to the hearing da 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 I went back to uh, St. Louis never heard from the draft board um, I don't know if the, the there was a clerk there um, and she retired I think she retired my papers with her cause, um, My mother was uh, well-known in the community, so anyway. uh, But back to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were both heroes of mine. And I was um, delighted when Malcolm moved to include all people. Um, uh, He became more, He became a Muslim rather than um, uh, siding particularly with Elijah Muhammad, and that's probably what yeah, got him he, he had a real
0: life-changing experience right. when he had a conflict with Elijah Muhammad. He went on a hajj mm-hmm.
1: uh, to Mecca, uh, to yeah. Mecca
0: and yeah. when he came back, his yeah. his tone changed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, still the same message, mm-hmm. uh, but his tone changed a little yeah. bit, and he— uh, he did have kind of a a, a little different, more all-inclusive type mm-hmm. of approach. It seemed yeah. like I wasn't there, but I, <laughs> but I, but, I, but I've read uh, I've read books, and and uh, Denzel Washington is my favorite actor of all time, oh, yeah, and he yeah, he had a great movie with uh, Spike Lee, yeah, uh, yeah, that kind of portrayed uh, yeah. Malcolm X's life, and that's how they portray it anyway. Yeah. And then reading books, it seems to back that up. Uh, what, what when that change? another. Did you mo- notice the change?
1: There's another movie out. Let's see, what's it? One Night in Miami.
0: It's a great. I watched that movie. Okay, yeah, it's a right. great movie. Yeah, yeah. Did people notice the change in Malcolm X at that time? Do you remember if you if you noticed a change in him after that, Hajj, or was it something that was just kind of uh, it was there but people didn't really take notice?
1: I. Um. Mm, uh, I, I. certainly took notice of it. Um, how it was viewed in the community. Mm, I, I. I don't know.
0: I'm fascinated by that by his story mm-hmm. uh, because of how his life started and mm-hmm. how he got involved in the nation of Islam and then uh, how he became a muslim after the after the Hajj I, I just, to me it was he's just a fascinating character that I never learned a whole lot about, like i said until i until I got to college. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I still have i think one or two records of his uh of his speeches, and he was a powerful, powerful speaker
0: yeah. Let's shift gears to the 21st century Okay. as someone who's lived, who lived through the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And now you see what's going on today, uh, related to racial justice. What is it about the movement today that you think is similar? We'll, we'll take both angles here, but let's start with what is similar today to what you witnessed back in the sixties? Well,
1: my mother and father, uh, and my mother grew up in Oklahoma. They lived through the Tulsa riots, and and the struggle has been continuing and continuous. Um, and and in, in my thinking, when I look at uh, the Black Power movement, uh, right on the heels of that was the Women's Lib movement. And right on the heels of that was the gay pride movement. So it's all kind of addressing some of the same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, you can ask your question again. What
0: what, uh, what similarities do you see with what's going on today with what was going on in the, in the 60s? I guess what I'm looking for is it seems like we've kind of spun our wheels a little bit over the course of time. Uh, So what are we still trying to accomplish that we didn't accomplish in the 60s?
1: We've made some strides. You know, we had a black president. We now have a female Afro-Asian vice president. Um, We have uh, numbers of people of color uh, in in the House of Representatives and as as, as senators. We've made some strides. But we still have killings of black people, black men, black women. So you wonder, what have we done? Have we we moved forward or or not? You know, it's just, it's a continuous struggle. Um, uh, We had the Ku Klux Klan uh, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 30s, whatever. Uh, and now you have the white-armed, white militants, if you will, Proud Boys and the 3%ers or whatever, you know, and mm-hmm. and they're armed and they're out there. Um, and it's just uh, a continuous struggle, a continuous struggle, uh, holding people accountable, Respecting the rights of others, um, whether you're a person of color or a female or whatever your gender may be, the LGBTQ plus, all of that is just a continuous struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you think we've come from? how How would you How would you assess that? So I've thought through that talk? quite
0: a bit, actually. Um, And I'll confess, as a white person, uh, did I think about these kinds of things before George Floyd's death? A little bit, but I didn't spend near the time on it that I have in the last nine months. I see where we made strides in the institutional kinds of things. I see in the last few months in particular, I, I struggle, as a Christian especially, with how little it seems we've traveled on the idea of changing people's hearts. Because uh, while we may have these <coughs> institutional things now, uh, like you said, we, we have elected officials, we've had a black president, and we've had s- changes in laws, but we still have people that, frankly, don't see people of color as human beings. And, and I, I struggle with that a lot. As a guy that grew up in Kansas, uh, moved, but frankly, I was in the middle of the country. A lot, moved a lot north to south, but I was in the middle of the country. And then I spent about 15 years in St. George, Utah, where it is almost all white. Mm -hmm. Uh, And anybody who's a person of color typically is a Polynesian or Hispanic, Mm -hmm. a very small African-American population. To move back to the Midwest and then to live through what we did in the last year, I I really struggle with what is people's hangup of people are people. (laughs) Why is this so difficult for people to get past? And I, I just don't... I just don't see it. I think it's because people are afraid of losing something. Mm-hmm. But losing what? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, that's the, that's the struggle.
1: You know, that, and, and there are rays of hope. Uh, I recall a conversation I had with one of our bishops. This was probably mm, 30 years ago, maybe. And at that point in the United Methodist Church, we had a missional priority, strengthening the ethnic minority church. And in our conference, we how do we see the church in our work through the eyes of an ethnic minority? And I remember talking to a bishop about a black uh, uh, promoting someone to become a district superintendent. And the bishop said, Oliver, you know, I don't have a problem appointing that person to be a district superintendent. My problem is, when he comes off the cabinet, where could I appoint him? There's not a county seat church that I could appoint him to. And now we've had, what, six district superintendents of color? Mm-hmm. Um so the, institutionally, we are, we are making some uh, some progress. I haven't talked to the the, the uh, pastors of color in our conference to see where they are, what they're experiencing. I, I don't know, uh, but I'm pleased that um, the appointment of Kathy and of Dolores
0: Oliver's talking about Reverend Kathy Williams who recently joined the Clergy Excellence staff, and Reverend D. Williamston, who as of July 1st will serve as the Director of Clergy Excellence and Assistant to the Bishop.
1: That's that's exciting, and I applaud uh, the Bishop so, for doing so that.
0: Shameless plug here. The previous episode <laughs> is all about Robert Johnson and D. Williamston <laughs> sharing what their ministry <laughs> has been like over the last nine months, so okay. make sure you give that a listen. All right. um, Oliver, all right. um, you mentioned some rays of hope. Uh, what are some things that you think... Uh, people can do constructively over these next six months or so to help with the concept of racial justice. Uh, do you have any ideas of things that people can do that will help them get a better mindset or actually hands, hands-on hands uh, help make things better for everyone?
1: Okay, so I can make a plug here for the Mercy and Justice um, team and our um, Um, the the work the conference is doing on justice issues. And I would encourage people to look at how they can address justice issues in their communities. Um, I'm looking at Jump in Topeka. um, I forget the name right off the top of the group in uh, Lawrence. Justice Matters. Justice Matters. What's developing in Kansas City. Uh, what's underway in Nebraska? You know, those are encouraging signs, and I would encourage people of faith, you know, to to get involved with it. How can I address justice in my community? Uh, and I think that's a way of opening up one's thinking, mm-hmm. one's actions um, to address racial inequality, justice issues in general. So.
0: Oliver, we'll let you have the last word with that. Thank you so much for taking time to share your story. uh, I'll just confess, I I, I actually didn't know much of Oliver's story until we were at General Conference in 2016. And we ended up riding public transit together several times, going to and from (laughs) the arena. And when you're talking, you end up talking a little bit about where you used to live and those types of things. I didn't know all of your story. But I knew just enough to think there was probably something really cool in there, and it certainly was. So thank you so much for taking time with us today.
1: And thank you, Todd, for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Oliver. I'll be back in just a few moments with some closing thoughts. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org dailydevotions daily devotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion, and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Help make more disciples today. How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do, in audio form, all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate big events, gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at org. I'd like to take just a few moments to celebrate a life. I was heading toward a video recording session in central Nebraska on February 25th when I received word that the Reverend Junius Dotson, the leader of Discipleship Ministries of the United Methodist Church, had died from cancer. The news stung. I don't want to overstate my relationship with Junius. I considered him a friend, but we were nowhere near as close as he was with so many other people who have shared such tremendous tributes since his death late February 24th. What I know is this, like many other people, I will miss him. Junius had a passion for including all people in God's kingdom. You could see that from the results of churches he planted in California, to the expansion of the footprint for ministry in Wichita while he served as lead pastor of St. Mark United Methodist Church, to the See All the People campaign he spearheaded as the leader of Discipleship Ministries. Junius had a way of making people feel welcome and cared for. His smile lit up the room. His incredibly thoughtful words always had you coming away with an encounter with him feeling wiser than you had before that discussion. I used to tease him that he was always the sharpest dressed man in the room, regardless of the setting, and I'll remember that a lot about him. As I said, I'll miss him, including our Facebook discussions from time to time about this illness that we both suffered from. You see, we're both Dallas Cowboys fans. Junius leaves a legacy of discipleship, of reaching out to people regardless of how society has labeled them. His last book was titled Soul Reset. It's a book in which he told his faith story, and in doing so, he did what he so often did. He educated people on how to build a stronger relationship with the risen Christ. Well now, Junius is in the presence of Jesus himself. Here, we grieve the loss, but we celebrate a life well-lived by a good and faithful servant. Human's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with First Calm Music. You can find archived podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.